Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. How wonderful it is to be together and worshiping God on a Sunday evening. There's just something very special about the Sunday evening services. It's always good to be together. We have been blessed with uh, a wonderful day. We are thankful for our elders, deacons, and ministers meeting that just took place. It was a good meeting. We're reminded of the blessing that we have in having good men uh, that are willing to devote their life uh, to God and in leadership of his congregation. And I just want to remind you that a congregation will never in spiritual growth surpass her leadership. That's just a good rule of thumb. And so because of that, would you be praying for your elders and your deacons and your ministers that we all can be growing spiritually so that we all can be growing spiritually. And uh, we're thankful for the way God has blessed us here in that way. Let's also, as we're praying, continue to pray as already tonight for Don Humphrey and for Tim Brunsfield that uh, are on their way to Sudan, the great work that's happening there in South Sudan but also be praying for the mission trip that's coming up at the end of this week, Saturday morning, we have a team going to El Salvador and that uh, will be a great evangelistic and medical mission trip. And so be praying uh, that great spiritual success will happen there for the kingdom. Also, as we're just thinking about good things, uh, we have several of our juniors and seniors in high school that have been working diligently to prepare lessons. And some of the young ladies are teaching some of the children's classes and some of our young men are teaching some of the adult classes. And some have already begun and some at the end of this month uh, will teach a couple of classes. And so maybe your class has already had someone in it this morning. If not, it might, may be that over the next few weeks, the Bible class that you're part of will have one of these uh, young men in there. And to those young ladies and the young men that are doing that, we are thankful for you. Uh, what a blessing. The, our young people are not the church of tomorrow. They're the Lord's church today. Uh, and they're vital uh, to the work of the church here. And I've already heard reports uh, from some of the young ladies teaching over the past few weeks how great they did. I heard reports from this morning how great some of the young men that taught have done. And uh, we just want to encourage you to continue serving and growing. And let's give God the glory for all the opportunities that he gives us. We've been looking at racism for the past few Sunday nights. The challenge that none of us should ever feel like our race or nationality or ethnicity is superior to any other race. We talked about the idea that this should not be something where we just simply learn to be polite, but it ought to be something to the core of our being that we truly believe that we are of one creator and that all of us, our origin goes back to Adam and Eve. And in that sense, we're one people. And so when we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, we, because of God and what he has done for us and through us, forming us, we truly can love our neighbor as ourself. But yet in recent times, an age-old question seems 
to be asked a lot more lately than maybe what it was even just a few years ago. Although I'm not trying to imply that it's a new question. It's, it's not at all. And that is the idea. Is God racist? And it may sound strange to you to hear that, but yet there are passages, if taken out of context in Scripture, can very easily lead to that question of whether or not God is racist. Dan Barker debated Kyle Butt. Dan Barker is a, an atheist and does a lot of debating from the form of atheism. Kyle Butt works for Apologetics Press and is a faithful Christian. And in his 10-minute rebuttal that he was giving in, a, in his speech, his 10-minute rebuttal speech to Kyle, he made this statement. By the way, and then he's talking about Abraham and Isaac and God telling Abraham to Isaac, offer Isaac up on an altar. And he says, by the way, Abraham should have said, no way. I'm better than you, God. I'm not going to kill my son. Was it moral for God to ask Abraham to offer his son upon an altar? You see, tonight, I don't want to give the premise as we begin by quoting a few atheists. I don't want to paint the picture that atheists are the only ones that bring this up or that none of us would have questions about it. Atheists love to use the idea of God being a God of genocide, a God of murder, and a God of racism. It's almost like their big cannon that, that they can fire and the hope is that, that they can land a hole so large in the side of Christianity that it, it sinks in the water. Tonight, even though part of what we can cover perhaps would be answers that could answer toward the questions that would come of atheism. That's not the goal of tonight's lesson. I believe that a lot of us that are faithful Christians read some of these passages. And when we really slow down, instead of reading them saying, oh yeah, this is a story I've read most of my life. But when we slow down and say, hmm, why did God command that? Was that moral for God to command that? It is fair for us to seek knowledge from God's holy word any time that we have questions. Also, Barker said in his book, Godless, there is not enough space to mention all the places in the Bible where God committed, commanded, or condoned murder. Sam Harris, in a book entitled Letters, or a letter to a Christian nation, he cited several Bible verses in which God directly or indirectly calls people to die. He then stated this, anyone who believes that the Bible offers the best guidance we have on questions of morality has some very strange ideas about either guidance or morality. Why are things like this said? 
Well, we could go to many passages to say why it's said, but at this moment, let's just throw out two passages so that we're all beginning on the same page to say, oh, so that's where ideas like this come from. Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. We're going to read about three verses. If you want to open your Bible, they'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, verse one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Now listen to this. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them is he racist? Do not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Let's see a more specific account of God giving a command similar to this, but a little bit greater detail. You remember in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, when God was giving Saul the command of what he was do, going to do with Amalek and the Amalekites. Notice what he says in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Why did God command the killing of entire nations? Why did God condemn intermarriages of Israelites with some other nationalities? Why did God choose Israel above other nations? Is God racist? Tonight will be the beginning of another lesson next week. And so I don't want you to get your hopes up that we'll be able to put this in a real neat package with a bow on top all tonight. And perhaps we may not even be able to do that for you in the following part of this lesson either. I also want you to know as we get into this that here are a few sources uh, that I appreciated either reading or listening uh, to some of, of what they've said. And so part of what I will share with you, just interspersed from here to there, will come from some of this. And, and I just don't want to take credit for their work, but I won't try to slow up along the way and say, well, I've got that idea from here and et cetera. Uh, but there is a, uh, a British chap named Peter Williams. Uh, he doesn't talk like us. And um, he is... He, is, uh, he had a presentation called Moral Objections to the Old Testament. And then also Kyle Butt had a presentation and an article that was entitled, In Good, Is God Immoral for Killing Innocent Children? And then also a fellow named Rich Tidwell uh, had a presentation entitled, Why Did God Kill People in the Old Testament? Also, I had a good email conversation with my father-in-law, uh, Leon Barnes. And uh, then I, I had a good conversation with Colton and 
And I, so we kind of, I said, yeah, this one I'm preaching on Sunday night. And he just spilled out a bunch. And I said, how did you know that? And I was like, wow, David Minton and Doug Perry did a good job with him. I, I didn't. So throughout some of this, um, we'll, we'll just take and, and pull the best that we can uh, to deal with what at times can be difficult questions uh, to try to answer. And so here's the one question that we'll look at in part, in part tonight. And that is, why did God command killing of entire nations? I want you to see this as a backdrop. And I almost began with a part of this, but I knew it was going to take about 20 minutes to lay it out. And I felt like that you would get wearisome with that and think that we were just procrastinating it. And, and so... I just want you to know that we may circle back around to this because this is of ultimate importance. And when I first started studying this topic, I thought it was important. As I continue to study the topic this week, I began to realize how much deeper of importance that this actually is. And, and so I'm just going to kind of throw out some thoughts here. There's, and this next slide is not great, stringent. Uh, it, it's not highly technical in any way or even organized. But I want you to see a few things that I'm asking you to just have this in your background. If, if I kind of had my lesson exactly the way I'd want it, we would spend the entire night tonight just on this right here. Uh, but that's probably not best. And so, I, but I want you to have this in your, your mind. And some of you that know scripture well, this will make sense to you. And if not, we'll try to circle back around uh, later on, maybe even the third Sunday night from now, we would try to do this. But one is the challenge is discuss this topic, considering the entire narrative of the scripture. Keep in mind, we're studying this from a Christian perspective. We couldn't say this if we were debating an atheist because they don't appreciate the narrative of scripture. Okay, but for you and I that love God and we love the scriptures, but we want honest answers. We're not just trying to say, well, I've just believed it all my life and that's good enough. Well, if, if God says it, that's enough. No, let's ask some questions here. God doesn't mind us asking questions. And so let's drill a little bit deeper. But as we do that, keep in mind, the entire narrative of scripture is important because everything about the character and nature of God ties back to the narrative in scripture. Last Sunday night, we talked some about the narrative of scripture. Remember the purpose of the church? We look in Ephesians 3, 2 and 3. Remember Ephesians 1? Before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth, God made this plan to redeem mankind, to send Jesus to this earth. Remember all the way back in Genesis, the, the, the 12th chapter. Abraham, I want to have a talk with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you and it will affect everybody that's ever going to live. Because through your lineage, all through the Old Testament, all of this narrative is going to be about bringing Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is, is going to be the answer for all families. And what did Jesus do? We studied last week, the church. The church is the manifold wisdom of God on display. And so even in the church, we see this narrative being formed. And, and by the way, you see already in this, and we're not going to stop here, of course, but you remember all that language about who's going to be invited into the church. All races, all nations. You see, we already know where God is going with this narrative. It's not racism and it's not prejudice. He has always loved all races and nationalities of people. 
But that still doesn't answer the question, why did he command the killing of some nations? And so we'll come back to this. But listen, as we come back to this question, it's important for us to keep in mind the narrative of uh, throughout scripture. A second thing that we need to remember is we need to leave God complete as we're contemplating this. We need to leave him whole. We need to leave his character intact. Sometimes you hear somebody say something about God will be said. And, and when we get to next week, we will probably talk some about the punishment that God issues. And my guess is there'll be somebody in this audience that you'll say to yourself, well, that's just too severe. Well, just because you think God is too severe, are you going to leave the severity of God intact as you discuss this? Or are you going to say, well, I just think God's too severe. And you pull that out and then try to discuss this question, you're not going to get a proper answer. And it's not our place to design God the way we want God to be as we seek answers to this. We must leave God intact. The nature, the characteristic of God, Romans, when it's trying to describe that everybody's invited in, Jew and Gentiles invited in, it's in that context that he says, but you need to know the goodness and the severity of God. So we need to leave the narrative intact. We need to leave God intact. And kind of repetitious here, but let's just say it this way. We need to leave the eternal purpose of God, and that is through Jesus Christ to save the world and make it known by the church intact through this study. And so let's, let's seek to do that as we go into this study. So let's consider this. Number one, who has the authority to create a standard of morality? Just bask on that a few minutes. And, you know, there may be some questions that you want to take with you and, and think about this week. Who, who has that authority to create a standard? Now, all of us need to say, I want to learn the standard of morality. But who has the authority to create a standard of morality? And now here's the second part to this question that's huge. It's another question. Is that standard weakened because you disagree with it? See, that's when you know your faith, that you're having some issues in your faith. Are we going to live by faith? Are we going to walk by sight? Whenever I see God do something or say something, and then I disagree with, well, I just don't. I just don't think it ought to be that way. Well, if God is the one who has the standard to create, if he, if he is the one who has the authority to create the standard of morality, why should that standard be weakened because you disagree with it? It shouldn't be, right? All right, let's ask another question. Number two, do you trust God? If not, what or who do you trust to establish morality that will endure throughout centuries, throughout nationalities, and even throughout all personalities that's ever been. Have you ever thought about how amazing God is that he can create one standard of morality and it has worked in every civilization that has chosen to follow it? It doesn't matter what continent and what time period. You find a document that man has written that will do that. 
It's absolutely amazing. But if you don't trust God, who are you going to trust in place of God to create a standard of morality where you can say, well, you know what? I don't trust God anymore because he commanded the killing of nations. But I tell you what, oh, oh Bob over here, I really trust him. Who, who are you going to put in place of God? And so we need to really think about, do we trust God? Third, let's ask this and we'll move on. Third, do you try to understand things only in a modern perspective? In other words, a lot of the questions that people have toward God's actions and questioning whether or not they're moral or immoral, most of the questions people have today go back to the Old Testament. Now, if we're going to understand these stories and the times that God did this, we can't try to put it in 21st century perspective. We must be willing to go back and to study deeper into what was happening before the passage you just read and after the passage. What's happening in the narrative? What did God set out to do in his eternal purpose? How was this nation affecting God's eternal purpose? What had this nation done in the past that caused God to command this at this time? And next week, we can't do that with every time God commanded something like this, but next week, in at least one or two times, we'll try to slow down and do that so that that will make sense perhaps to us. So let's go back to this idea of trusting God tonight. And let's spend just a few minutes on this. Do you trust God? Let's think about what we mean by why we should be willing to trust God and, and how that perspective could change if we look at this from a few different angles. I want you to imagine with me an adult and a child at Charlie Daniels Park. And I want you to imagine that the child is interacting with everything that they have known to them at that moment. And the adult says, hey, it's time for us to go. And what's the child say? No, I need to stay here longer. And the adult has a much greater perspective, a much fuller, whole perspective compared to the child. And the adult knows the child has homework when we get home. We have to get supper prepared and eaten when we get home. Hygiene has to be taken care of tonight also. Preparations for tomorrow also have to be in place. And so who is, who is right here? Now the child feels 100% as if they're right. When the child says, no, we need to stay. The child's not trying to lie to their parents. They're not trying to pull a fast one. In their limited knowledge, that's what they know. It's fun here. It's good here. We need to stay. The adult, in their knowledge that is much broader, they have a much different perspective. I want to encourage you to realize that that comparison helps us at least see a tendency, but even by scope, it doesn't even compare with how much more God knows than we know. And that should help 
us when we think about, do we want to rely on ourselves as the child of God? Or as God's children, do we want to look back and rely upon God who knows the past, the present, and the future in its completeness and in its entirety? Because in that scenario I gave you, even though the child desperately wants to stay there, the child is not right. The child is not correct. And in that scenario, the adult is correct, understanding so much more. Now, if you want a lighter spirited, lighter hearted way to illustrate this, let's go back to one of my favorite childhood, six o'clock on Saturday night. Have you ever been there? Remember back in the days when you had three stations on TV? You guys would have loved it. And, uh, and you know, you had Willie Coyote and, and his objective in life was to uh, catch the roadrunner. But you remember that um, they didn't live by the same laws of nature that we live by. You remember that? There were, there were always things that, like, what, what if a parent expected their child to watch that and then for their child to live by the very same laws of nature that they watch? I mean, your child wouldn't be alive very long. And so like in, in this little episode, this little episode right here, we, we see him pushing back this spring. He is pushed and pushed and, and he's holding it with all his might back. And finally, here comes the roadrunner. And so when the roadrunner comes by, he lets, you know, he lets his heels up and, and it shoots him. And, but the problem is, you know, the roadrunner has stopped on the edge of the cliff and, and the spring has just pushed him right off. But here's one of the violations of the law of nature. You ever notice how they always get right out there and just stop for a minute? And, you know, they look right at the, the audience and then they realize, oh, this isn't going well. And so then he falls. And I guess that does go with the law of nature. But, you know, it always the rock that whatever's attached to always comes down next. And so now and then, you know, this kind of violates the law of nature. You shouldn't be able to walk away from that. And you shouldn't be able to walk away from that looking like a spring. But, um, but we see that and say, <clears throat> wow, that's totally a different perspective of, of law and, 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 and et cetera. You could illustrate this a few different ways. If you were comparing our perspective of things and God's perspective, in a sense, it'd be no comparison. How much more he knows and how powerful he is. But also there's another way you could illustrate this here, and that is what we can understand coming to these questions with a sincere belief in God really enables us to see things that if someone does not have a belief in God, they cannot understand the same things that we would understand because of our faith. And so that gives us a... And let me just pause there. And remember our theme for this year? We want to see the marvels of God, not just to marvel at what he's done, but why we want to know him. The better you and I know him, the better we can answer questions like this because we already know some things about his character. And so along this line of thinking about, do you trust God? Uh, we, we, we talked about the child in the park, different perspective there of the child and the adult. Let me give you an illustration. Do you think it's morally wrong to stab someone? Just in your mind, you just answer that right now. Is it morally wrong to stab someone? It's oftentimes believed that stabbing someone is very painful and shortens life. And that's the reason that most people believe that it's morally wrong. Hypothetically speaking, 
What if stabbing someone actually felt good and lengthened their life? Would you then say that very same act is no longer morally wrong? Like what makes it morally wrong? In Genesis, the 22nd chapter, God gave Abraham a commandment to go and offer his son upon an altar. He was to build the altar and he was to tie his son up. He was to lay his son on that altar. And you remember he apparently was supposed to take the knife and kill his son because he had the knife lifted above his son and it was God that stopped him. Was that morally wrong? And if so, who was wrong? Was it God who was wrong for commanding it? Or was it Abraham who was wrong for going along with the command? Or was it morally wrong? Those are the questions that we need to seek to find answers to. Now, because of our understanding, not only of this life and of eternity, there are several things that we can see different in this story because of our faith, because of what God has revealed, and even details of what God has revealed in the text. That if someone, I'm showing you the the difference perspectives, if someone that doesn't care to study, doesn't care to know God, and they just quickly turn to Genesis 22 and say, look at that, look how immoral God is. Why? Because their perspective is totally different from someone who knows God, knows about eternal life and knows about the power of God and knows about the promises of God and that God always keeps his promises. In other words, someone would bark out and say, this is totally immoral and someone else would cry, this is one of the greatest acts of faith in scripture. Which is it? It can't be both. Is this totally immoral or is this one of the greatest acts of faith in the scripture? God speaks about it as if it's one of the great acts of faith in the scripture. So now we've we've got to do something. Is is God that wrong? Or is someone who says, well, that's immoral. And and so for this one, let's let's dive just a little bit deeper and and, uh, we'll we'll try to move on here and wrap this up. But number one, all or even the best isn't destroyed at death. Do you believe that? Because if you did, it would change your perspective when you think about, hmm, you mean that Isaac might have died? Well, but you know that for a child of God to die, everything is to be gained. It's not a loss. And so that in a sense is a different perspective. In Matthew, uh, Philippians, the first chapter, Uh, that's the way Paul described it. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus talked about, well, what if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? In other words, what you really gain is when you gain your soul going over into eternal life with God, that's the greatest gain that there is to gain. But someone might say, but still, that's that's a pretty, uh, I don't know if that really proves it. Well, let's keep moving on. But that's one thing to consider. Number two, God can and does remarkable, beyond nature, things. 
He can and he does marvelous things. So when God was asking Abraham to do that, could God make that where it would not be immoral? And could Abraham have a trust in God that what God was asking him to do would not be immoral because of the power that God has? We know in Exodus 34 and 10, we read this back in January. He said, behold, I make a covenant before all your peoples. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The people of the Old Testament that knew God, they knew this. They knew God could do things that nobody else could do. Now, this is very important in this story. Because we're going to see that the reason Abraham was willing to go along with this was he knew this wasn't just any kind of offering. He knew God was involved in it. Look, he knew that God keeps his promises. You remember in Genesis, the uh, 17th chapter, the reason God has to come out and clearly state this 17th chapter. Remember back in the 12th chapter, he told him he was going to be the father of a great nation, but he and Sarah didn't have any children. She was barren. And, and then they kept waiting and she did, still didn't have any children. And so, so finally they come up with the idea. They say, hey, this eldest servant we have, Eleazar, that's the one God is going to consider our child and bless him. And God had to come down and say, no, you're wrong. That's not going to be how I offer a blessing through your lineage. And so the next chapter, they give up on God again, at least not being patient. And they say, you know what? Sarah says, you go into my handmaiden, maiden. And, and um, Abraham bears a child with her. And Hagar and Abraham have a son, Ishmael. That would look like the solution. God comes down and says, no. I'm going to still keep my promise, but not the way you're doing it. And this is how he explained it in 17.4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Before he and Sarah even had one child together, his name was changed to mean you're the father of many nations. That's believing in the promises of God. And so skip down to verse 21. In 21 he said, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. He's not even born yet. But he's saying, that's who my covenant is going to be with, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. You think Abraham understood that God can do miraculous things? The only way he had Isaac was because he understood God could do miraculous things. Do you think he understood that God would keep his promises? Absolutely. He had doubted God and doubted God and God came through in flying colors and said, you can trust me. If I tell you something, I may take a few years, but you can trust me. It's going to happen. Now let's go back to this offering of a son. When they were going to Mount Moriah, they got inside of the mountain and he told the servants that was with him to stay with the donkey. Have you ever noticed the pronoun that he used and Abram said to these young men, that's the servants, stay here with the donkey, the lad, that's Isaac, and I will go yonder and worship. And what he means by that is I'm going to go offer my son on a, a, sacri a, a altar as a sacrifice to God. 
I'm going to take his life and I'm going to offer him as God has told me to do. Now read that next line. And we will come back to you. He believed not only in the promises of God, he believed in the power of God. Now, if you say, ah, you think there's anything that, well, the Hebrew writer even made it just as clear. Look in Hebrews 11th chapter, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son, because notice he received the promises, offered his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So what do we see here? We see that Abraham trusted God. Trusted that he would do something to make what seems on the surface immoral that he would do something in a way to make it moral. He'll resurrect him. It won't be a life gone. He will bring him back. And of course, we know the end of the story. God didn't even allow him to follow through with taking his son's life. All right, I'll go over this really quick in like two minutes time. We're out of time. We'll start here next week. But so let's go back to that idea of standard morality. There are some things that God absolutely can't do. And some of them are just illog not logical at all. It's just illogical. And like, you know, can God create a rock so large he can't pick up? Uh, can, can God create gods greater than he is? Can God choose to not exist for five seconds? Well, no, that last one he wouldn't do because it's against his character. It's against his nature. The others simply are not logical. All right, but, but think about what we see in Scripture, some that really pertain to some of this. If God is the standard of morality, what if God just chooses to look at something that's evil and he says, well, because I'm the standard, I'm going to say it's good. Well, that would be against the very nature and character of God. That's why, like in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, uh, down in verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. And so, like, when he condemns in Isaiah, the fifth chapter, in verse 20, individuals, humans, that call evil good and good evil, God condemns the things that are against his character, against his nature, God will not lie. He won't look at something. Abraham, this is immoral, but I'm going to tell you it's good and you go do it. God can't lie. God can't call good evil, evil good. It is against his nature. And so the idea is you can trust God. Let's stop there. We are out of time. Uh, that was really a really good point coming up. Come back next Sunday and... Uh, <laughs> And, and we will uh, we'll look at, at the idea of, of who can you trust. And we'll look at some specific examples. But at this point, think about this this week, study on this this week. A lot of this really comes back for us as Christians of what do we know about God? 
Are we willing to allow him to be the standard? All this is kind of backdrop. Do we trust him to be the standard? Do we know the narrative? Do we know his eternal plan? And now next week when we go in and look at some very specific times when God commanded entire nations to be wiped out, all this backdrop of this week, so hang on to it, it'll really make the rest of this hopefully make a lot more sense. Tonight, we're just people studying God's holy word together because we love God. We are people that, that want to walk as close to God as we can and we want to live with God for an eternity. We're people that want to help each other. We're not people that, that, that wants to discourage each other, throw rocks at each other. We're not people that think because we maybe know God a little better, we're better than somebody else. Whatever knowledge we have of God, we love him and we want to help others gain knowledge of God. And so we're about to sing a song of encouragement and it's just to encourage all of us to walk close with God. And if you're not a child of God, we would love to study and try to answer questions that you might have from God's holy word to help you know God better. If you're ready tonight to be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins, if you are a child of God and, and sin has separated you from God and you want to come back to God and pray forgiveness tonight, we'd be honored to pray with you. But let's go out this week and let's seek to know God. And let's see the marvels of God. Let's see a beautiful sunrise and not just think of the beauty of it, but think about how great God has to be. Let's see the peace and the unity that we enjoy where God can bring so many backgrounds together. And in his church, we see the manifold wisdom of God through peace and unity. Let's see God as we see that. Tonight, if we can help you come as we stand, as we sing.